My name is Travis, and this is Oscar Mike Radio, and we're on the move. And like on the move, I am really on the move. I'm on the Cape remote, and I'm doing another first. I'm talking to my first officer. He's in the U.S. Army in the medical corps, medical field. I think they call it the corps. I'll find out here in a second. But without any further ado, I'd like to introduce my good friend, fellow brother, Captain Mark Tayo. Marcus, welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Thank you, Travis. Pleasure to be here on Oscar Mike Radio. Hello, everybody out there in Oscar Mike Radio land. Absolutely, absolutely. You've been one of the first listeners. And as we get into this, just real quickly, what do you think about all this all set up in your living room? Uh, this is quite a contraption you have here. Very portable. Absolutely. Very, well, all Mar- high speed. Marines got to be able to fight anywhere. That's right. So is the Army. And, and you do something in the Army. You're A lot of people I talk to do you know the fighting and, and this and that and their supply or their ordinance. or their, you're, you're the people fixing us when we break. So I'm, I'm going to be very interested to hear your side of that. What I kind of want the listeners to understand tonight is, is you're kind of an outlier. You got into the Army at a different point in your life. You, you had a, a lot of experience in your current field. And so I guess what I want to start with is your civilian background. Because, again, you didn't come out of high school and join the Army. You had a whole breadth of experience and life lessons before you did that. What was your life like professionally and personally before you went into the Army? So you're right. I'm a, kind of a unicorn to the military. Um I came in at 47 years of age, over the deadline, actually, for um, a reserve medical corps officer, just over the uh, just over the age line. 46 and a half, technically, is the uh, cutoff, but I had started the paperwork before that, so I was I was allowed in with a waiver. Let's say that. Prior to that, I'd been a I'd been a, a ER and critical care nurse for uh, at that point roughly 15, 16 years. I was divorced at the time, sort of unencumbered by the usual encumbrances of life and marriage and children. Oh, I mean, I did have kids, but um, I, they didn't live with me. What got you into being in, in the medical field in the first place? So, what made you want to be a nurse? Right. So around the age of 30, I discovered that, you know, there's a glass ceiling on a lot of careers out there. Um, I'd been in the trades. Uh, I was doing well in that pretty well. I'd owned my own business. Uh, I'd been in the wine and beer business for, you know, here and there off and on. But wherever you go, Trav, there's always a glass ceiling. And, you know, what that, to those unfamiliar with that term, that's something my generation's used to hearing. You know, you, you, whether it's you move into an area that has a certain populace or a certain industry, or let's say you move around a military base, you can't have a disproportionate number of people making X and Y when the majority of the people, or the, I'm sorry, the minority of the people being like the service members on a base are making X. So there's always that glass ceiling. That's the way, that's the way economics works. So I always want, I wanted to have, I wanted my kids to be comfortable. I wanted to have a good living and nursing medicine and et cetera makes a, there's a, there's an old saying that if, what's, how's it go again? Let me back up. You're your income is only limited to the number of hours you're willing to stand on your feet and do it. So if you want to work every day, 365 days a year, you're going to be a, you're going to be a real asshole by day 180, but you're going to be a, a guy making some decent coin. So that's kind of what I just needed that ability to expand my options, work the different shifts that I could, be home for my kids when they were little, work nights, be home for the kids during the day, and go to work afterwards. What was it? 
purely about the money and ability to earn money, or was there some kind of draw for the uh, you know actual patient care aspect of nursing? Well, I think you know people that people that get into the medical field uh, generally um, have a have a desire to serve their their fellow man, human beings. I think that's definitely part of it. Being able to care for your fellow man, being able to leave a dent in this world more than what your ass leaves in the couch. That's a huge driving factor for me. You know, and I, I tell everybody nowadays when I see new grads and, and we have new nurses in the department or something, or if I, if I, get, the, um, if I get the new nursing student, it just looks a little misguided. I always give them that little piece of advice and say, there's going to be a time in your life when, if not for you, Becky or, or Joe, if not for you deciding to be a nurse and go into the field and practice and make your make your time worthy and and try your hardest and you know drive yourself and be educated and be good at your craft if not for that then you're going to take you know you're going to take care of a patient one day where if not for the fact that you had done all those things that patient would have had a good outcome because you weren't a slacker and you did study and you knew what you were doing and you knew what a sick patient looked like and you knew how to take care of them that's what makes the difference. So if you leave this life with just that, just that one point, you've done good. So nursing allowed you to make a difference in people's lives, provide for your family, and give you that, I don't know, it sounds like at the end of the day, you could you could lay your head on the pillow and knew that you had done something. Correct. And it's a lot like golf. Medicine's a lot like golf. Really? Exactly like golf. Come on. I hate golf. <laughs> I, and I, I, nothing against anybody out there that plays golf. I personally hate it. I don't have the time. I don't have the patience. Um, I, I don't have that much time in a day. But I do golf every once in a while, once every year or two. Because why? Because my father likes to golf. And my father's not getting any younger. And so I do it for him. And every time I go out there, I, I, you know, I miss, I tee something up and I miss it by, you know, a hair and it dribbles off the tee or I drive it into the woods or I drive it into the lake or I drive it three feet off the tee and keep hitting it down the and I lose my mind and I want to bend a club around a tree but there's always that one time there's one hit where I drive it 350 yards and it goes straight as an arrow and lands on the green and I say you know what this time I won't throw my clubs in the trash can on the way out <laughs> so it's exactly like that and that's what medicine is that's what it's the same thing. You're dealing with the personalities at work. You're dealing with patients that are outrageous, you know. And and then there's that one. There's that one that always keeps you coming back. And sometimes you get it once a week. Sometimes you get it once a day. But you get at least one a week. I don't know if you're aware of this, Mark, but I have a serious case of white coat syndrome. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I think it's a point of pride. Well, I did until the nurse practitioner got a hold of me that it had been eight years since my last checkup in 2016, mm -hmm. that NP nurse practitioner got like upset, like like she took it personally. Well, you know, we we want you to come see us. You know, we want you to check in. We want to make sure we screen you for everything. We want to make sure there's nothing going on with Travis that we can we can circumvent early and, and prolong your your life and make you healthier. Well, she was mad, but then I had like perfect blood pressure, heart rate, and all that other stuff, and, and she got madder because there was nothing wrong with me. So I, I think the, I think the flashpoint was when I told her I said, "Well, I'll go for ten years next time," 
Then she ordered every test she could possibly order for me just to make sure that I got stuck with as many needles as possible. But it's just the old question I got to ask. Why do military guys seem to hate the doctors so much? And should we really, back to your original point, make it a point to manage our health properly? You know, the military, you're right. Military guys do hate going to the doctor unless they're, you know, they just caught a bullet. So, yeah, I I think, you know, the military breeds people with a mindset of, invulnerability and particularly in your alma mater the marine corps where you know you're you're basically a machine an indestructible fighting machine and i can see how that would carry out and you know into your civilian world but i should like not go to another 10 years no don't just get your finger wave every year just like you're supposed to so we could check on everything we'd actually actually i think we stopped doing those we just do the blood test now but you could, if you want to pay extra for the finger wave, you can. No, I really that was pretty traumatic. <laughs> so you have this 15, 16 year stretch of your life of being in the medical field. You have experience in the trades. You have a lot of different professional endeavors, and you're going through life. And all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? I, I want to join the army. I want to be all I can be. What was the catalyst that made you? What kernel in your mind made you say that's a good idea? At forty seven. When most guys are working on making the dent in the couch bigger. So so I can remember vividly watching, and this is, and you can thank um, HBO, I think it was, that put Baghdad ER on, on the big screen. And here I'd had all these years already in the, in the, uh, in the trauma rooms and the, and the critical care field. And I just remember looking at, watching what they were doing and seeing these, these, um, you know, we had to roll out a lot of new people to cover down on all the all the war stuff that was going on. You know, the army didn't start with too many nurses. It started with a huge deficit when we went to war. You go to war with who you have. So I can remember standing there screaming at the TV, "You idiots are doing it all wrong!" Okay, and and just what are you doing? And I think my wife could attest to that if she was here. Um, and she said, what are you getting so upset about? They're pushing blood through an interosseous needle. That's not how blood gets delivered. Or, you know, you need, and I just saw a huge deficit. I was watching this and watching this, and I saw a huge deficit. And I, and I, I decided that, you know what, I'll, I'll put my money where my mouth is, and I'll, and I'll go talk to a recruiter. So what did the recruiter do when you walk the door at a non-typical Army enlistee's officer's age yeah so (laughs) what was that like he was he was impressed with my resume but he kept trying to I don't know whether he was talking me out of it or just disbelieving that I'd be back for the second interview or something you know he was he kind of he told me what 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 uh was available oh you know if you want to get in you know you're you're 46 and a half plus you know we're cut off 46 and I said well you started the paperwork a while ago I said doesn't that count for some can't you start from it seems like a real number. We started at that number there, and we can move forward. Well, we'll need a waiver. And I said, well, get whatever you need. And then I said to him, and, I, and he said, well, why do you want to do this? And I looked at him. I said, do you see anybody standing behind me? Do you, I, you've got my resume. It's, it may not be the greatest, but to me it's pretty good. You know? So you know who I am. I'm ready. Are we going to do this or not? And they tried... I should say, I hate using the, the pronoun they, or the, the word they. The, the military recruiting system, as well as the military itself, tried everything to DQ me. 
everything. I had to go to Walter Reed. I had to get on a plane and fly to Walter Reed <laughs> for a physical. You want to talk about what you went through with all the testing. I was there for 10 hours. Oh, my word. Yeah, 10 hours. Great hospital, by the way. And they checked every cent they wanted to make. They checked joints. They checked mobility. I had to kneel down on the floor and pop back up to a standing position, which I've later found out was something they did in World War II. Yes. So, and I was like, you know, here I am, I'm 46, almost 47 years old, and they're putting me through this. It was April, so it was only a couple months before my 47th birthday. And, um, and I, I just couldn't believe it. I, the only thing they didn't do on me was a PET scan. Well, what's that? Well, it's like a, it, it's a scan where the... It's a, uh, a CT of the entire body, essentially, you know, where you look for cancer. You know, you use um, every, every microscopic type of level of, of uh, viewing that you can to try to find anything that would DQ. It's a 10-hour doctor's appointment. That I would, I would be palpitating by that time. I wouldn't even be, no, we're done. It was crazy. And then there's the physical aspect of it as well with the PT test. How did that go? So I, um, I didn't even, you know, the funny thing is I didn't even know what the requirements were. <laughs> so <laughs> my first drill, I show up and they're like, okay, we're going to do a PT test today. And I was like, well, mine, I knew mine wasn't going to count because immediately somebody said to me, hey, yours, your first one doesn't count because you haven't been to basic yet. This is a diagnostic. Well, thank God, you know. <laughs> I didn't do too bad on the run, but for my age group at the time, I needed like, I, I passed everything, but it took a lot out of me. Passing is not an acceptable thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not the, um, the passing type. So just passing was not acceptable. Passing to those who don't know is 60% on everything. So you'd get a 180. Okay. So the standard for an army officer at the time was 250. Oh, wow. That's the unspoken standard. Most of them are 182, but you know, you know it's, let's just say it's, one, it's 250. And it, depending on who you talk to, it could be 280. So that was, that was tough. And, and I had to really do a lot of serious work to get my times down, to, to get myself in that position. And it's probably what blew out my shoulder, but whatever. You go through the onboarding process. You, you MEPS out. Did you go to any kind of officer's training? Yeah, officer base, basic officer leadership course is what it was called then. It's now in two parts. It's actually twice as long now as it was nine years ago. Mine was approximately 32, 33 days. And we went down, everybody in the Army Medical Corps, every officer in the Army Medical Corps, Nurse Corps, goes to uh, San Antonio. You check in at the Holiday Inn. You put all your stuff in your room, all your civvies and everything. You pack your bag for the next day. And the next day, you go to a class where they tell you what to expect for the next 30 days. Then they march you up to Chow. Travis, my right hand to God, six people fell out on the walk to Chow. What? Right. So there was nobody screening the medical corps before they go. Remember, we're getting paid for what we do in the civilian side in the reserves, not for how many push-ups we can do. Six people fell out. There were bloody feet everywhere. It was only a mile. It was a mile. Okay. <laughs> we're just, we're not even warmed up at a mile in the... Right, right, right. A mile, that's a walk to chow in a core, isn't it? Right. So, yeah, and, and then from there on, it was all out in the field the entire time, except for three days. Like a camping trip. It, it was, with no... With no clean water, no hygiene. Well, we had a small hygiene station, no showers. Ah. And we, we uh, people, you know, it used to be in my father's time. It was, you know, it was two weeks that, you know, you spent in a barracks learning how to salute without your keys in your hand. 
that's what Officer Basic was back in Vietnam <laughs> or the or, you know the early eighties. But um, I think the I think they caught on that that wasn't working for them. So you go through all that, and that must have been a, somewhat of a culture shock. Had, were you the, like the oldest class? I was the at the time I was the oldest directly commissioned first lieutenant nurse in the nurse corps. They wouldn't bring you in as a captain despite your time and you know you're in the in the civilian world but they they brought me in with 15 years of of um, experience they brought me in as a first lieutenant with 11 years of constructive credit so technically i was overdue for promotion when i showed up for drill all i had to do was get to basic and i was promoted before i got back from basic what did that feel like when you got pinned and you became a you know legit army officer besides my um the birth of my children um my last the last time i got married to my present wife i would the say general that, big right. shout out to the general we'll get to that in a minute <laughs> and, and you were there so i would say all those were great t- those were the greatest times of my life but the minute that you realize that your country your short-sighted country has entrusted you <laughs> you big goofball to put on their uniform to honor you, they honor you by giving you that uniform, and I think that's where a lot of guys go off the rails when they see, you know, people disrespecting the uniform, disrespecting the flag, uh, treating the uniform like a costume. It's not a goddamn costume. No, I, I think that's where a lot of that passion comes from. I, I don't think, I, you know, I'm not that person to physically, you know, get up in somebody's face on the street, but I appreciate those who do. Pretty, it was a pretty. Uh, Pretty memorable moment. So before we get into some of your uh, Army time deployments, because I understand you were deployed in some ways and had an effect on me, we'll get into that later. What would you say is the biggest difference between civilian nursing and medical care versus the Army's way of doing things? Because there's the Army way. How would you classify the, the differences between the two or, or, or contrast that for us? So that's, that's a good one. So let's, let's break that down into two different parts. One, anybody that enters the military without civilian practice is practicing in the Army. They're basically, they're, they're being raised medically or they're being raised as a medical provider in the Army the Army way. Stateside, that doesn't mean much. I mean, you have a lot of great care being given over at BAMC. At, um, na- you know, Bethesda Naval, Walter Reed. There's tremendous skill in those buildings, tremendous skill. But it starts very low speed, very low speed. So you don't get, you, you do clinic work. You're essentially, you're on a base. You know, you're not seeing the same kind of patients. You're not seeing sick patients. You see a lot of um, urgent care stuff. The civilians that come into the military in the reserves have been practicing outside, have honed their craft, particularly the doctors, the nurse anesthetists, the docs, the PTs, all the nurses, everybody's been honing their skills, and they bring them to the military. The military's great. Now, on the other side of that is the CPGs that the Army has are, in a lot of ways, more advanced than the civilian world. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. Less litigiousness, a huge body of people to practice on. And, you know, the willing and the will to want to do the great things as soon as possible, cut through the red tape, cut through the lawyers, cut through the FDA, and you get things done. You start coming into this this uh, world because a lot of people, including myself, believe that the, the military is a, a microcosm or a, an ecosystem outside of normal life. So you're adjusting to the military life, you're adjusting to the Army way of doing things. You, you do all that. In the meantime, you find out that you're getting deployed. And 
if I may for a minute, you know, I, I remember us talking about that. Uh, you and I spent a lot of time talking about deployment and what that meant, what could happen and what would happen, and the fact that all of a sudden this got real. And before I get into what I thought I was seeing you go through, I kind of like to hear how that affected you going off to Afghanistan um, and, and what was around in your mind when that time happened. This is going to be different for me than it was for a lot of, I wasn't leaving small children. I was leaving a woman that I loved. Uh, I was leaving elderly parents in her care, which I knew was going to be a burden. Nothing, you know, I didn't marry her because she was a weak-willed nitwit, you know. I married her because she was smart and she, you know, could handle herself and, and she'd work it out. Um, and I knew that, you know, anybody can do 10 months. I can do 10 months standing on my head. The, willing, the, the will to be deployed, the desire to be deployed, and the way that you get ramped up for this is now that somebody has given you the opportunity to take all those decades of practice that you've now been doing. For me, it was decades. And use it on the very best patient population that you could ask for. The coalition, U.S. and coalition forces in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, I don't know if you could find a better patient population, one that I would, more ra I would rather serve. When you say best, what does that mean? Well, guys and men and women are going out on a daily basis to exercise the diplomacy and the will of our government. And I'm not going to say to protect our freedom because we haven't had to do that since 70, 1776. We are exercising our will to provide a better place for people in this world, to negate terrorism, to protect and, and hold beautiful the things that we love here. That's, we were assaulted. People came after us. We didn't start this fight. We didn't go over there looking to start shit with people. You know, it was brought to us. So, our, you know, everybody could argue with me on why we're there, why we're not there. We're not there for this, we're there for that. Okay, you know what? I take my orders from one man. And if he says go, you go. That's it. And I, didn't, I got into this with the maturity of knowing the difference. I'm not, I'm not pretending I'm going there for any other reason but one, and that is, well, there's two reasons. I'm going there to take care of soldiers, and I'm going there because my country wants me to. So one of the things that really kind of interests me in, in doing this with you is so many times we hear about uh, the soldier's story or the pilot's story or the, the, the helicopter door gunner's story the sniper story, I, I could go on, 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 right? But very rarely, well, MASH was, I use MASH as an example, but MASH was kind of tongue-in-cheek. We very rarely hear lip to ear what it's like for you all to see some person, man or woman, coming in with egregious, horrible wounds, and it's go time. I, I've never, I mean, not even in the time we've known each other, I've known Mark for almost, what, 20 years now? Pretty close, right? So yeah, pretty close. I don't know if it's because as medical professionals, you, it's just your job and, and you're used to it or what that is, but I don't ever really hear medical types, and I don't say that disrespectfully, talk about what that's like. And I'm not asking you to go down the rabbit hole very deep if you don't want to, but I really do want to understand when you see that patient coming through the door off the Blackhawk, what goes through you all's mind? What's that like? You know, when you, again, it's going to go back to repetition, maturity, age, time on the job. 
you just you go rhythmically through and methodically through the same things you've been drilling down on for years. You the same procedures. You've trained yourself to you. And I, I will quote. Uh, is it okay if I quote a good friend of mine, one of my old bosses, uh, Colonel Rick Bailey, uh, my battalion commander, and his great his favorite line was, "Train till you cannot get it wrong." And as the as the training goes, that's difficult to do sometimes in reserves, but we've been able to execute, and we we do. We train a lot on the same, not the same scenarios. Uh, one of my jobs in the in the uh, in the FST, the 402nd FST, is that I am in charge of coming up with these training scenarios along with the commander, and we drill down on this repeatedly to to nauseum, to exhaustion. Because not everybody's had two decades of experience. So perfect practice really makes perfect. Absolutely. You do Afghanistan and you've done Iraq. I gotta ask, which did you prefer? Which which had more challenges? Which would you want to do again or not do again? I've only been to Afghanistan. Oh, I thought you were in Africa. Africa. I thought you said Iraq. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, Africa and Afghanistan. A- okay. Africa was was more of a. I can't talk about necessarily the mission that we were there to support, but I can tell you that it was a combination thing where we were there for over a month, a multinational training exercise, um, sort of exhibiting what we can do best, trying to learn, you know, get those equatorial African nations up to speed medically, and just support something else that was going on. So there's no doubt in my mind that Afghanistan was the best experience. And I would go back wholeheartedly anytime they would take. One of the things I get a whole lot is that the Afghani people really didn't want us there, didn't appreciate us there, and quite frankly can't wait for us to leave. Did you ever interact with any of the uh, the, the Afghan nationals? And what was your sense if you did? Uh, we were we were with a lot of the ANA. That were we uh, the four hundred second FST was. Uh, I, I mean, try. I have to do this sort of in a way that's make sure we cover down an OPSEC. We were there working with not only other agencies, but mainly with the special operations groups that were doing the majority of the, of the, of the work over there. Nobody was really going outside the wire other than special operations. The rest of it, you know, it's kind of weird when you, when you think about the 101st, the 173rd, or, or the 10th Mountain doing FOB security. You know, it's like, it's like caging a Rottweiler, you know, let your dogs fight. That's, you know, kind of what I always thought. But so we, we supported them. So we were really close with them. We were close with the ANA. We had some really good experiences with the a- ANA over there. ANA were the majority of our wounded because you know, for one reason or another, they were the majority of our wounded. Uh, they fight like John Wayne and they're not very careful with their bomb or their metal detectors. So the, um, they get blowed up a lot. And uh, you know, our, ter- our interpreters, they were f- outstanding human beings. Really? Outstanding. Trusted them with my life. Well, you just don't hear that a whole lot. A lot of times you hear that they were either felt like they were forced to fight or weren't really into it. Uh, I've heard a mix of stories, but uh, it was interesting hearing it from you. I always thought talking to you before you deployed in the times we didn't really get to talk during your deployment. What we did is we we would exchange emails every now and then as you were able. Is I really felt like that you had, you felt a sense of achievement and a sense of purpose uh, doing this. It's not that your um, time as a father, time as a husband, time as, you know, look, folks, he does fantastic woodwork. And I probably shouldn't say this because uh, you know, he's over allocated, but <laughs> he can 
build anything. And I'm really jealous of his of his talent. But all that aside, this felt like to me, Mark, that this time in the military, even before you deployed, gave you a sense of purpose that led to a, a period of completion in your life. Absolutely. It's like box checked plus. And it also leaves you, interestingly, you said it that way, because it, I have often said, like, like, why do you, people ask me all the time, why do you want to go back? You know, we have an upcoming deployment. I won't say when, it's in the future. But um, we have an up- upcoming deployment. People say, why would you want to go back? And I, I said, I have an overwhelming sense of unfinished business. Overwhelming. And despite the fact that we at uh, the 402nd FST, that stands for Forward Surgical Team, to anybody who doesn't uh, know that answer, despite the fact that we have a 100% record of survivability, which, to my, which I'll explain, everybody that showed up with a pulse left with one. And what an FST does is we do resuscitative surgery, immediate, urgent resuscitative surgery, just minutes from the point of injury. And, you know, we're all familiar with the golden hour of medicine and golden hour of trauma. Well, we have the golden 10 to 15 minutes. I mean, we're seeing people that quick. Well, that's one thing that I want to touch on for everybody. It, it's, it's my understanding, and tell me if I'm just reading this wrong. I have read in multiple places that battlefield medicine from the time I was in to, uh, you know, at the end of, uh, of Gulf II and Kuwait to uh, through the 90s till now has has progressed light years. It's an understatement, completely different. Where if you get wounded now and they can get you out of the area of operations back to the forward operating base or back even further alive in that Black Hawk or whatever it is, you know, MRAP, Humvee, if they can get you back there alive with a pulse, your chances of survival have, I can't even measure what the, what the odds are of you living, much less returning to full duty. And it doesn't seem to be hearsay anymore. Like, like guys are telling me who got wounded over there that it, it wasn't the fact they couldn't get me out, is that the doctors were that good to save my life. You're getting guys in there that want to be there. You know, the docs that want to be there. They're the best of the best. We have thoracic surgeons that are in their 70s. Really? Yeah, that serve still. And, and orthopedists. And, and these guys, you talk about guys in the top of their field and you just go, you know what I haven't done in this world life? I haven't taken care of soldiers. And they go and do it. Now, I'm not the only one. Oh really? I'm just I'm just uh, I'm just Captain Nitwit, the uh, the nurse. You know, uh, there's a there. I I serve with a bunch of guys that lose tens of thousands of dollars by deploying. You know, the docs they go for ninety days. Some of them go six months. I, I one of my best friends over there was a colonel. Now um, he came as he was he commissioned as a light colonel, uh, trauma surgeon from Boston. And um, he's chomping at the bit all the time to go back. Money, does, you know, it's not money that drives people in the military. If you get in, if, if somebody tells you, if somebody in the military tells you, I got into this for the money, go get a net because that son of a bitch is crazy. <laughs> but getting back to your point um, or your question, what was your question? <laughs> the question is the survivability rate has increased to a point. Oh, yeah, yeah. I look at survivability rate and I look at things like prosthetics, uh, that have advanced so much that you have guys getting wounded in the infantry, actually getting fitted with a prosthetic limb and going back into their unit. It goes back to this point that medicine has really changed. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people, until they're you know shot or wounded, appreciate that. Things we do now are beyond, light years beyond what we did in 2000. 
light years, you know, or even 1990 in the Gulf, beginning of the Gulf War, um, which was like Stone Age compared to what it is now. I'm, I'm going from my personal experience. When I was in Yuma, Arizona, and Yuma's one of the hottest places in the continental United States, if not the hottest. Yeah, it's like hell. Yeah, well, it was. And there was a couple times we punched out for four to six weeks in the, the desert. We were in the middle of nowhere. So the nearest hospital was Yuma Regional. There was no real hospital on base. You had a clinic there. And, and our officers and staffing COs were briefed that, look, if your guys go down for heat exhaustion or heat stroke or have a, a, a trauma-type injury, fall on a rock, a, a launcher knocks one of them over, they're probably going to die before we can get the, to them because they have to call it in. They have to either try to get a helo from MCS Yuma find us, land, load the guy up, and take him back. People don't understand why I tell them. We, we, were, we were literally punched out an hour off the main road in the desert. The guys are telling me now, Travis, I mean, I mean if we can just get the Blackhawk to him, get the, get the FSTs or the docks to him, we can keep them alive and save their lives. That was not available to us back then. So we, we had water protocol. We had rest protocol. They were constantly checking on us to make sure we were okay because if we went down, we were not, we, even in peacetime, even in civilian, you know, even in civilian, you know, uh, theater, because uh, YRC was our primary care for those kinds of things, we were dead. And he's like, that wouldn't be the case now. Uh, uh, if we can get a helicopter to you, you know, a helo taking off from Yuma is going to take 20 minutes to find you. If we can keep you alive for that 30 minutes, you're going to make okay. So I, I just, I can't uh, sit there but, but appreciate how far things have come. And I, I just don't think people hear about it enough. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. People don't want to hear about uh, guys getting wounded. Um, and it's not like the, um, the ER shows that are out there where you can just film what's going on. Um, I didn't even know about Baghdad ER. I'm going to have to check that out. Um but as you've gone through this and you've seen both sides of the coin now and, and, and you, you go back to your normal life and your normal job, um, one of the things I did want to touch on is, for me, I want to understand what was the impact or how did your wife and your relationship develop or change as a result of your service and employment? Well, you know, the quick answer to that is, well, you were at the airport when I got home and it, you saw Michael Jordan leave from the top of the key. Right? All right. So folks, I'm, I'm going to tell this. I was at the airport when uh, the good captain comes home and I will say it seemed like I could have been seeing things, but there was a very happy woman in uh, Logan Airport that day. Everybody knew that her husband was coming home, and I don't think I saw a hug last that long in my entire life. No. She, she didn't want to let you go. No. So she was very. She seemed very happy to see you. Yeah, but the air that she got on that leap. It I, was a. I, I was. How does she's defying the laws of physics? White girls can jump. They could. <laughs> Honestly, I we I might have spoken with her briefly about it, or asked her if she had any concerns, and I think. You know, she doesn't know the Army. She doesn't know, you know, she has no idea. Well, she has a bit of an idea because we make jokes about it. But in her mind, she was only thinking about the worst possible thing. And I can remember um, I can remember being out in Bagram and walking outside so I could speak to her privately. You know, I, could, I, had, um, I had T-Mobile. I got a T-Mobile smart card for my phone. Is that what it's called, a smart card? SIM card. SIM card. Mm -hmm. Thank right. you. Thank you. I'm technologically challenged so i got a sim card she sent me the sim card for t-mobile 60 bucks all the texting you want all the um and as much talk as you want for 60 dollars 
Well, it turns out T-Mobile, terrorist mobile, right? Of course it's going to work over there. Um, it was the only one that did work and, um, and had a good network. But I can remember going outside, and in Bagram, we got rocketed all the time. And our, our building, our point, our, our little AO for our FOB at home, FOB area, before we went on missions, um, we were close to the C-RAM. Have you ever heard a C-RAM go off? No. Have you, have you ever seen the movie Godzilla? Yes. Okay, it sounds exactly like Godzilla. <laughs> so I'm out there, and all you hear is, the uh, the alarm first you hear the bell you know bong 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 incoming incoming take cover and then the C ram goes off and it's I don't know ten thousand rounds a second coming depleted uranium tip explosive rounds going out of this thing to intercept this incoming rocket and she's like what was that right and I said oh it's we're right next to the right next to the range that didn't sound like no range to me since when do you have an alarm for a range. And I said, it's nothing, honey. It's the range. I can totally see her saying that, though. Right. Well, how come I don't hear the guns now? Well, they're, lo- they're changing the targets, honey. So she goes, are you lying? No, I will say this for, for everybody. She is much smarter. The general is much smarter <coughs> than, than uh, Captain Tyler and myself put together. So uh, I'm not surprised. Right. So it was, and, and it was, that wasn't the only time that it happened. It seemed like every time I went outside, it happened. But. Um, I, I think she understood that, that, and I kept enforcing, listen, Doc gets taken care of, okay? They look out for us. Well, I, you know, we're hearing this and we're hearing that. The world hears a lot of things. Mark, we are talking about, you know, the interactions with your wife, and obviously she knows what a gun range sounds like. That's kind of cool. Um, any other stories that uh, jump out of you that uh, she got a kick out of while you were in deployed overseas? Oh, Oh, geez. Um, so the very best, and I, and I spoke about the, I spoke about the network already with the, uh, with the phone and, you know, we were on a, we were on an LZ by a certain dam that basically supplies the water to all the poppy fields in Southern Afghanistan, um, in a very hot little zone sitting on an LZ waiting for a Chinook. And we were all kind of grouped together, uh, facing out like different rays, you know, and then we're just back to back sitting there and, you know, light discipline, noise discipline. This is all very important. All of a sudden I hear my phone going off. (laughs) That's not tactical. No, not at all. Big glow. Someone goes, what the hell is that? Right. Like, oh shit. Right. I dive on the thing. Right. And, and I hit the on button and it's my wife and she's like, I said, hello. You know, I just whispered, what's up? And she and I said, she goes, oh, my God. And she starts into this thing about my mother driving her crazy. And I was like, honey, honey, I'm in the, do you know where I am right now? Do you have any idea what's going on? I don't care. I want to talk to you about this. Your mother is driving me crazy. And I was like, I, I, I am fully aware. I am 100% aware. But you have to understand something. I can almost see the Taliban. I can almost see them. We're in a very delicate place right now. Could I call you back? Fine. In other words, folks, not fine. Not, not fine. cool. The general's not happy. Because then it's another that I didn't, I, I don't think I could call her back for over a day by the time I got back to a place Ooh, where I could. So it like really steeped and Oh, it was hot. 
It was hotter than that LZ was, I can tell you that. Woo. Rounds inbound. Yep. Danger close. <laughs> Danger close. Yep, yep. That was that was the worst. Well, she's still here. She still loves you. True love is something else, my man. Well, I can't believe I, I, I you know, I didn't have any idea that I was going to have service. I didn't check my phone. It had been on for like probably a good two days without, you know, anything at all. And then all of a sudden it just got service. I've been trying to call you, Marcus. Oh, I've heard her say that before. So better you than me. So that's pretty funny. That is pretty funny. Um, I'm not going to say that being deployed is a safe place to be. That would be foolish. But uh, I think that there is a certain measure of um, protectedness in the medical field. Uh, it's most definitely a dangerous thing to do, traveling around by Blackhawk all the time and going to places where, you know, you, you could be attacked. We were fortunate. So you've done all this. You, you, you've had the life experiences, professional experiences, civilian and military. You've deployed. You've undoubtedly saved lives or at the very least touched lives. You've come back. You're in your, your civilian role now. Your husband, father, son. As we move forward with this, as you move forward with life, you've seen you know both sides of the coin now. I, I kind of want to wrap this up and kind of get on this track of I ask a lot of people this who I interview is from from your view, what do you think was or is the biggest challenge of the, the reservists you served with facing them when they got out and facing them when they're, you know, doing their 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 service? Let's start with the service first. What's the biggest challenge to somebody in reserves working in reserves when they when they are fully activated? You know, I think it's pretty easy. Really? I think it's I think dealing with things at home is the hardest part of it. The um you know, Sebastian Younger talks about this the best in that uh, his book, Tribe. It's all about, you know, deploying the brotherhood and all that other stuff. Um, and he talks about coming home and how, how, how soldiers deal with that. The challenges for being deployed are, are just trying to keep from going crazy in the boredom. Because that's not the... We're not fighting our grandfather's war. You know, right. this, this is a whole different way of fighting wars. Um, again, it's being run... It's being fought by a select group of people with a whole lot of gear in the rear and support in the rear. Um, so it's a separation. People don't like, a lot of things happened over there that were bad for, for families, for marriages, young people mainly. All the people my age were fine. They had a routine. They, they had the maturation. They were able to just, you know, get up. We had our niner. We got, we got to work. We did what we needed to do. We went to, we went to chow. We went to the gym. You know, there was a routine. You have to establish a routine. My commander, a great colonel, had an unbelievable, she was, I think she was on her ninth or tenth deployment. And she had a great way of keep, keeping people occupied, keeping their head out of boredom, making sure people were on the move all the time. And she tapped me to remodel the building that we were in. Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like being at home. It was just like saying. being at home. Where's um, that porch? She was like, Tayo, I got a mission for you. We want you to, you know, I need you to get this painted. I want you to put a football field on the floor. I want you to paint that for the Super Bowl. I want you to do all this. I want you to rewire over there. I want to make sure, you know, we get this whole place cleaned up. Take whoever you need. Get them moving. And, and it worked. So fight the boredom. Get your routine. Keep drilling down. 
keep practicing because the, the casualties don't give you a day a day's notice. In the overall sense of people who've served in the military, the military in general, and I'm just asking for your opinion here, mm-hmm. what do you think uh, in light of a lot of the PTSD that's out there, what do you think guys could do to address that? I say guys because um, simply for the only reason that uh, more men than women kill themselves. I'm not saying that women don't, please don't take it the wrong way, but what do you think that people can do to get in front of that before it becomes critical? You know, I wanted to do a whole show on PTSD with you. We, um, we still can. Okay. <laughs> One for the future. So I have, and I'm, and I'm going to, and a lot of people out there are going to want to reach through that mic and rip my ass off. But there's a lot of things about PTSD that I think people need to understand. One thing, it's an extremely overused term. There's a better term, and that's dysfunction. So when I, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cast a broad net of negativity here, but I'm gonna tell you this. I don't know anybody that went over there normal that came back jacked up. I don't know anybody that uh, committed suicide, but I've heard the stories. And I know what causes people to be suicidal. I've seen, I've had to count, well, you know, being in the Met, we had to kind of backfill in a lot of the FOB medicine and and take care of a lot of patients that were, you know, sometimes we had three or four guys show up and say, well, this guy's suicidal, he's with his buddy. Well, what's wrong? Well, his girlfriend broke up with him. You know, we're not not seeing the same kind of um, combat fatigue that we saw in World War II in Vietnam. That's not how we fight anymore. That, that's not the kind of fatigue we see. We see people that came in jacked up that are bored, uh, undirected or, or misdirected. We see people coming in with mental illness to get through the screening process. Um, and, you know, people, de- people depress those things and keep them down and, sit, you know, sit on top of them and won't say anything until they get, you know, they reach the snapping point. What you can do as a, as a soldier coming home, if you're in a unit that's being redeployed and you're coming home, find out what everybody else is going back to. Because what you're leaving, we had 20 people come back, or 24 people come back. And one of the things that we, we were very tight. So that, that kind of brotherhood, that kind of like watching each other's backs, always having your back, always being confident somebody had your back. And if I, if I, didn't, if I had a disagreement, I did have disagreements with people over there, but we, we settled them immediately. And that's, that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen in our world because over there you have to settle those things immediately. You get that shit ironed out quick. You come back home, your boss is giving you shit, your wife's not understanding, you know, hey, I got to take care of these kids all this time. You know, where were you for the last 10 months? Don't you come home and tell me how to run this house and that type of thing. That's extremely common, extremely. And the guy's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just came home and I just like, I'm, I'm, I'm still at this, at this level of, I'm amped up, I'm still at this level and, and now I got to kind of bring it down a notch and now I got to work with different people and I got to be sensitive. There's no sensitivity in the military, you know, and and that's fine because that's the way it should be. But where guys go off the rails and, and females too, you come back with these expectations that it's going to be the same as when you were deployed. You're going to have that same closeness. And I don't mean hugging it out. I mean just having that kind of bond with another human being, being able to say, that guy right there would step in front of a bullet for me. I know it. I mean, it's kind of funny hearing it from a nurse, but 
you know, we, we did carry over there. We were exposed. So knowing that somebody had your back, that if you looked like you were tired getting off a Blackhawk, he'd grab your, your, uh, your bag and carry it. Not everybody in our unit's, you know, able to squat 400 pounds, you know. So looking out for each other, getting your setup, making sure you're covered down. And, you know, if you've got a guy that's got young kids and a family, making sure you ask him, how's the family? Drop in, interrupt his conversation. These are all things that as an adult, as a mature adult, we practiced. The docs over there, they would always cover down on the young kids. Get them interested. It always, you know, when a colonel comes up to you and says, hey, how's it going? How's the family? Well, the colonel was interested in my life. You know, specialist so-and-so or sergeant so-and-so. And, and just say, hey, are you, you, got, you got blood bank? You got the, uh, the blood refrigerator duty tonight? Go ahead. Go to sleep. I'll take care of it. I got to do homework. That type of thing. People, that's not what you get on the civilian side of the world. No. See, my thing with PTSD, and I, and I do want to talk to you further about it, and we did have several conversations around that, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up, is I, I, the, the data is off for me, and, and I'm not trying to make this antiseptic or clinical, but I don't understand. I know that shell shock was formally diagnosed by Sigmund, Dr. Freud in uh, World War I, the British commissioned him to study it. So we've had these types of, of symptoms and, and occurrences that we now call PTSD. What I do not understand, looking back at the Korean War, World War II and World War I, is for the number of people that served, we, we didn't either A, hear about the number of suicides or they weren't tracking it, whereas now the number of suicides just recently the marine corps released uh you know figures that suicides increased in active duty uh, marines 20 percent last year so there, there's something data wise that doesn't support why it's why it is the way it is now versus and the reason i'm saying this mark is many more people served in those conflicts than they did now you're absolutely right it's not you know fifty thousand guys attacking a hill like they did in in you know Mount Suribuchi or Guadalcanal, it's small units heavily supported by aircraft and, and, and so on and so forth doing this. Still doesn't explain why the numbers are the way they are. So it's either to me misdiagnosed or there's a root cause that hasn't been addressed yet. So good question. Excellent question. So the, when you say it's underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed, it, it's usually misdiagnosed because if I ask you, and I'm and I'm just I'm just throwing it out there right now, yeah. okay? There, there, does it appear to you that there is a disproportionate number of people that are saying they have PTSD right now? No. To me, it does. Okay. And why? And the reason is, is that you're having people. Are they? They have PTSD from being bored because there's not a whole lot going on over there. If a guy gets deployed, if a guy comes to me and says. I was over there in 2011, and I've got PTSD. Well, what are your symptoms? Well, not sleeping at night. Okay, what else is going on? Post-traumatic stress disorder is, a, is something that w interferes with, and I wish Mrs. Tayo was here to, to help me on this one because I know she's got a better answer for this. But 
PTSD is a, is a syndrome that interferes with the functioning of basic life. So are you unable to hold a job? Are you unable to hold a conversation with somebody because you're, you are physically imagining or hallucinating that you're seeing something here? Are you waking up at night? Is it interfering with your sleep? Are you having night terrors? Um, if you get, if you're telling me you have your, your, PTSD, you have PTSD and you're gaining weight because you're just sitting around eating too much. To me, it just means you're lazy. I, I, I got to have more. I, I, clinically, I want to hear from you why it is. What did you see that was so disturbing to you that now it interferes with your, your adult life, your activities of daily living? What is it that's going to interfere with that? And I, it, I, I'm not getting it. You know, I'm not, I'm not hearing that. There are a lot of people over there that experienced emotional trauma from, from the, uh, the dissolving of a relationship or the death of a family member when they were deployed. These are disturbing things. They're not things that cause PTSD. What causes PTSD is if you're in a Humvee and you hit an IED and you suffer not only a brain injury, but you're also, you watch five of your friends be liquidated inside of a, of a vehicle. That to, the, to a non-clinical, non-medical person is a disturbing sight to see. People don't get, you don't get to see a body blown to pieces in basic training. If you're not ready to see that, I can see where that would cause you a problem. I can, I can completely understand how watching somebody literally be vaporized by a mortar round or by a, a 50 cal or cut in half by a 50 caliber bullet. I can see where that would bother you. I can see where the idea of shooting, uh, shooting at somebody, a female, a, a woman, a, uh, a non-combatant, I can see the, 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 the disturbance that that would cause in the psyche of a normal person. It would take a psychotic son of a bitch to be able to put his head down and sleep comfortably with that image in his head. I have no problem. I mean, I don't see, and then, of course, People are going to be disturbed by killing combatants. People are going to be disturbed by, uh, disturbed by killing. Um, there's going to be a percentage of that. Is it worthy of post-traumatic stress disorder? I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. But I do know that the numbers don't make sense. The 22 a day is something that the Department of Veterans Affairs is pushing out. And I, I, I'm telling you, Trav, run the numbers. We well, wouldn't have any veterans left. A good friend of mine in Florida, Jim Tuff, uh, has researched this. Um, and, and we both agree and we talked about it, it, is the study the VA did to get to 22 has inherent flaws in it. And the administration that commissioned the study, the, the you know, Obama's administration, had to come up with some kind of number because at that time, from like 2007 to 2011, there were a lot of suicides going on. But um, it just goes back to, I think we'll, we'll do this next time, you said the same thing I said in a different way from a more of a cl clinical standpoint. The, the numbers really mess with me. Mm -hmm. For the number of, of men and women that served in the Korean World War II and World War One, we, we should have you know a lot more people having killed themselves as a result of those conflicts, and they didn't. They might have used alcohol and other means to cope, but they did not kill themselves at the numbers we see now. So there's something going on there, and I don't know what it is, but I do think that there's a lot of flaws with the numbers were presented and the way this is, is diagnosed. And 
until we really look at it from a, from a root cause analysis standpoint, I don't know if there's going to be much progress made at this point in time. So it, it's, it's something I can talk about for hours. Um, you know, I, I buried a couple, not guys I know, but I buried a couple of people who, who did commit suicide, and, and, and I, I didn't know why. They, uh, one of them was not a, a combat veteran, did not, you know, did not have a combat MOS, but still did it. So that we, we could talk about this for a while, but I mean, just talking to you for this last you know time that we've had, it's just very different hearing the perspective from somebody who, for lack of a better term, stops the bleeding literally. And, you know, for everybody out there, these people that, that do this, like Captain Tyo did and his colleagues and the people full-time at Walter Reed, you know, many of them are committed to, to saving your son or daughter's life or your husband's life. Or, or your wife's life uh, at, at any given time, whether they're on a ship and, and an ejection seat fails or, you know, they fall down the stairs, whatever. And it's just been a really good time kind of putting aside our, our friendship and relationship tonight, Mark, and talking about this on a very real, real way. I want to thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So I'd like to have you back on to, to talk about PTSD or other things. Uh, I, mean, I, I can tell you, folks, I really thought that Mark was going to be in Korea right now. Um, that did not come to fruition, thank God. But, um, you know, he's not. But the next time you, 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 you see that uh, Red Cross symbol on a uniform or someone tells you they're a doc or a medic, you know, just asking some of these questions, you'll get some really good insight as to what goes on. And um, whatever comes next for you, man, thank you. Oh, I thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem, no problem. So, folks, you'll hear this on OscarMikeRadio.com. I'm everywhere on Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, uh, SoundCloud. You can find me on Facebook at Oscar Mike Radio. My website, OscarMikeRadio.com. Throw a like on there. We're going to end this episode. This is the last time we'll do this for number 137 where we send out with my Australian rapper friend, Rainy Brady, as a.k.a. Muggsy Brady, with one of his tracks. He's doing a lot of cool things down under. You want to check it out. And again, I am Travis. This is Oscar Mac Radio. We are on the move. It's never endful You can't do the same So don't step to Us in a crew Step one, step two We wanted this from the start So we're coming through In your street Bringing that hardcore beat Making that movement From under your feet From always something new Haters want
what you're gonna do You're gonna look stupid on what you tried to prove Because we're pumped in on your block Sending now, hear my message when we're ready to drop Yeah You can't stop us now, we're unstoppable You can't stop us bro, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, we're unstoppable It's our mission and we're ready to rock Yeah You can't stop us now, we're unstoppable You can't stop us bro, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, we're unstoppable Forward momentum and we ain't gonna stop Cause I find me an addict Cause that forward momentum I gotta have it, have at it Not half as good as the next man Ten times bro, gotta grab it By the scruff of the neck, ring it out End up as a wreck, work it out Gotta keep it in check, sing it out That's the name of the game, that's what life's about To reflect with the best of them That's what you like to call life's tests, I guess When you cry, when you're pressed, I said That's what I like to call life's tests, you mesh Ah, what a sesh But if you still see rain, then you need to digest What I put in your brain's like a pill It'll make you insane on the Shaquille What put you here? Who you think you are? You're the highest man here? Well that's a start Look around, take it in We take it all Now sit back, watch begin You can't stop us, no, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, bro, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, we're unstoppable It's our mission and we're ready to rock, yeah You can't stop us, no, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, bro, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, we're unstoppable Forward momentum and we ain't gonna stop Run this town like Jay-Z and Kanye Me and Pablo doing it the Aussie way The temptation, we're firing our eyes Getting closer to that one true prize From the honesty of a hip-hop prodigy I keep telling myself, nothing's gonna stop me For that dream to make it come true That's why we speak the truth in the booth Yeah, we spit truth, call us the criers We sing loudly, so call us the choir Me and Muggsy, born in the fire No pad and pen, yeah, that's all we require In the booth, to spit truth And the crowd to rock, raise your hands to the roof You can't stop us now, so turn up the track Let's hear it loud, yeah You can't stop us, no, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, bro, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, we're unstoppable It's our mission and we're ready to rock, yeah You can't stop us, no, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, bro, we're unstoppable You can't stop us, we're unstoppable Forward momentum and we ain't gonna stop